Well, thank you very much, Neil, and good morning, everybody. And lovely to see you all, and great to be with you, great to be back in Monaghan. I was just thinking this morning that my first visit to Monaghan, not, of course, to this wonderful church in which we're sitting this morning, but to uh, the church as it was then, was probably uh, exactly 53 years ago. Now, I'll not tell you what age I was then, because you'll do the mathematics and then you'll know all my secrets. But uh, I remember going out to Urker and uh, preaching the gospel there. I remember coming on my little motor scooter and uh, some kind gentleman met me at the border and we left the scooter at the border and I was escorted the rest of the way uh, in the luxury of of uh, a very big car, all of these things I remember. I was very impressionable in those days. And what a wonderful time indeed that was and what a wonderful memory it is to hold. And so here we are maybe creating a few more fresh memories today and over the next few weeks that I'll be with you. Very grateful indeed for the invitation to be here. I feel it a great, great honor and uh, lovely to meet with new friends and to renew acquaintance with old friends. So let's, before we go any further, pray together, shall we? Let's just seek the Lord in prayer. Blessed be his wonderful name. Our God and our Father, we thank you today for the great privilege of being in your presence, of coming into your house fellowshipping one with another and together magnifying your great name, lifting up that peerless name of Jesus. And we come, O oh God, today that we might not just observe a ritual, that we might not just, O oh God, maintain a routine, but we come to meet afresh and anew with the living God. And to that end, we pray, indeed, as we have already prayed, that you will renew a right spirit within us, that you will create a new heart within us, a heart, O oh God, that will hunger and thirst after you and will continue to hunger and thirst until, O oh God, we are fed and watered abundantly to satisfaction level, O oh God, Keep us, we pray, keen. Keep us, O oh God, enthusiastic. Keep us, O oh God, with the touch of God upon our souls. That this fire, O oh God, that, our, that you ignite in our hearts will never dampen. That our, our pace will never slacken. But that, O oh God, we will go from, from one degree of glory, as it were, to another with you in this journey that we take together. Gracious, loving God, come this morning and bless your word. Bless the reading of it. Bless the preaching of it. Bless the receiving of it. Oh, God, grant understanding not only with the head, but, oh, God, above all with the heart. May we imbibe your word today. May we absorb it so that it becomes part of us, so that, oh, God, it is translated from words into power, power in our lives, a fresh touch of the Holy Spirit, we ask. And indeed, O oh God, if any among us know you not, then we pray such will be the power of your word today that they will be drawn to Christ, they will be drawn to the Savior, and that this might be a great freedom day for them, a day in which, O oh God, they will lose that burden of sin and enter into the liberty and joy of the Lord. Grant these things, we pray, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen and amen. If you have your Bible, or you have your Bible, I'm sure, perhaps in your phone or wherever, we're in Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8 this morning. Uh, I'll not read all of the chapter, it's a very long chapter, but we will refer to different parts of the chapter throughout 
the message this morning. And um, if you can keep your Bible open or keep it lit, whatever device you're using, uh, please follow us through the scriptures this morning. But just for a taster, uh, let's begin there at verse 1. Now, Saul was consenting to his death, that is, Stephen's death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And listen to these words. And the multitudes... The multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. No wonder. Amen. There was great joy in that city. The Lord will bless his word. Keep your Bible open, as I say. Over these next few weeks that we spend together, I'm going to take you on a little tour. We're going to visit various towns and cities that are named here in the Acts of the Apostles as we witness the move of God, which began, of course, with Christ and was accelerated on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, as, as the move of God continues throughout the pages of the New Testament and throughout the towns and cities that we will mention and many others besides. And today we're in Samaria. And as we've just read, Samaria, like Jerusalem, becomes a great scene of revival. And at the center of that revival is the Lord, of course. But also we see there the Lord's man, the Lord's messenger. And that is Philip. We are introduced to Philip in chapter 6 of Acts. He was one of seven men who were men of good reputation, Acts 6 tells us, men full of the Spirit, Acts 6 tells us, and men full of wisdom. And again, we read that information in Acts chapter 6, verse 2 through to verse 6 of that chapter. And yet these were men who, though with such high qualifications, were men who were set apart, who were appointed to deal with administrative, administrative affairs within the, the early, the growing, the young church that had been brought to birth on the day of Pentecost. They were given a ministry, if you like, of visitation, a ministry of administration. Their charge was to feed the widows and to see to the hungry and to attend to the material needs of people who had joined themselves to the Lord and, of course, to the church. He was not an apostle, he was an administrator. His role may be seen at first to be 
a lowly one, a necessary one, but, but a lowly one. And not necessarily a role that projected him into the foreground of the move of God, but a role that substantially relegated him to the background of the move of God. His ministry began dealing with ministering to, witnessing to people on a one-to-one -one basis. And yet, as we see in Acts chapter 8, in this great city of Samaria, his ministry progressed to him becoming a mighty evangelist, a mighty revivalist, preaching to great crowds. We emphasized the word multitudes when we were reading just a few minutes ago. And we see him being used of God in a miraculous way. And so a man who began faithfully and humbly, as it were, in the, the backdrop of things, is accelerated, is projected by the Holy Spirit to the forefront of things. He had been faithful in the little things, and now God was counting him faithful in the great things. And brothers and sisters, each and every one of us this morning have tremendous potential in God. We have tremendous potential under the Holy Spirit's ministry to us. And surely if we are faithful in the little things, God will entrust us with greater things. Sometimes we give ourselves a bad press, and while no one should regard himself more highly than he ought, as the scripture teaches us, sometimes we are harder on ourselves than anyone else, and certainly harder on ourselves than, than the Lord is. And at times we see ourselves as insignificant. At times we see ourselves as non-entities. At times we see ourselves as no one that God could particularly take and use, even in little things, never mind the big things. But doesn't God tell us in his word that he takes those things that are weak and he confounds the mighty and he takes those things that are not to bring to nothing those things that are or consider themselves to be. This revival in Samaria highlights a number of things. Let me deal with them as quickly as I, I can as there's ground here to be covered. The first is that it happens against a background of great persecution, a background of great persecution. But as we move on from that, we see even against that background of great persecution, there is great gospel preaching, great gospel preaching. Philip and the church in general were not deterred by persecution. They persisted in the power of the Holy Spirit in preaching the gospel of Christ. And as we progress from great persecution and gospel preaching, we see also in the mix that there are godless professions made. Strange things happen when God is moving. There are some who want to get onto the the, the, the wagon, some or some who want to get onto the to the, the wagon that God is pulling, the wagon that God is pushing. They they want to get in on the act, and they, they do so even without a genuine profession of faith in God. And we'll note such a one in just a moment or two when we come to it. There's great persecution, there's gospel preaching, there's godless profession. 
but at the same time, running alongside this, there is genuine power. The genuine power that unmasks the false, the genuine power that reveals and discloses the counterfeit. Let's think about that great persecution for a moment. When we go into chapter 7, we read there of a colleague of Philip's, one who was selected at the same time as he was to be a, a deacon to the church, to be an administrator within the church. Yet he too was raised up by God to be a mighty evangelist. And that resulted in his persecution. And that persecution ultimately led to his death. And we read that in the opening sentences of chapter 8. He was stoned to death, Stephen. The stoning of Stephen heralded an age of great persecution against the ever-growing church. We have that information in those first four or five verses. We see that it led to the scattering of the saints. The stoning of Stephen led to the scattering of the saints throughout Judea and Samaria. And at the time, that may have seemed, that may have been perceived as an attack, yes, against the church most certainly, but it may have been seen as a hindrance to the church moving and the church working and the church expanding. But in fact, this persecution was doing the exact opposite. Rather than hindering the church, it was thrusting the church out further afield in fulfillment of Jesus' words in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where, of course, he prophesies the coming of the Holy Spirit and tells us there you will receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in where? Jerusalem, but not just in Jerusalem. The word had to expand. The, the word had to spread. The, the gospel had to be taken to the whole world, beginning in Jerusalem and moving out to Judea and Samaria. And here we are in Samaria. Here we are seeing the word spreading because of the scattering of the saints throughout Judea and Philip taking it into Samaria itself. As we see, yes, this great suffering brought, this great persecution brought great suffering. It brought great turmoil and must have seemed to many to mean the end of the church and be, perhaps even the end of, of everything. However, both the church and its enemies were to find that rather than suffocate the church and the message of the church. Persecution resulted in the spread of the gospel. The stoning of Stephen resulted in the scattering of the saints and the scattering of the saints resulted in the spread of the gospel. And all of this is seen, therefore, to be in the sovereignty of God, the sovereign movings of God. And the things, dear brothers and sisters, this morning that often seem to be against us, contrary to us, more often than not work out for our best and for God's greater glory and will, without doubt, when we submit to God and trace his will and get on his bandwagon, as it were, for genuine reasons, moving with God, no matter what the cost to us may ultimately be. And who knows? Who knows what persecution awaits us in, in this land, whether north or south of the border? We may even see 
the glimmerings of it. We may even see the hint of it. We may even see the beginnings of it in our day and in our age. And how much more intense it will become remains to be seen. But let's not be daunted. Let's not be discouraged. Let's not see this as contrary to the move of God's Holy Spirit. But rather let us see it as part and plan of God's will to move, to motivate, to grow his church. For Philip it meant taking refuge, as we've seen, in the city of Samaria. And Samaria may not have received him all that well because Jews looked upon Samaritans as being of much lesser value than themselves. In fact, they regarded the Samaritans as half-breeds. They even went as far as to call the Samaritans dogs. And all of that was going back 700 years. You think in Ireland we have long memories. And here we see exactly the same thing. Uh, it was a result of the integration between Jews and Gentiles uh, dating back 700 years uh, before Christ came when the Assyrians invaded Samaria, which at that time was the capital of Israel. And as a result of that, over the generations, uh, there was intermarriage, there was interaction, and thus the Jews as, and the Samaritans, as we read early in the New Testament, even in the ministry of Jesus, had no dealings with each other. And yet Samaria was to become the center of a great revival, a mighty move of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes God moves in the least likely of places, just as he uses at times the least likely of people. And we see what triggered this move of God in Samaria. It was the gospel preaching. It was the gospel preaching against the backdrop of great persecution. This revival broke out in response to the faithful and fearless preaching of the gospel. Philip was not cowered by the wicked death of Stephen or the persecution that resulted therefrom. He had a message for all people, whatever their race, whatever their religion. And that message, very simply and very clearly, was the same message as was preached in Jerusalem. You remember that tremendous Pentecostal sermon that was preached by Peter on the day of Pentecost in the streets of Jerusalem, resulting in at least 3,000 people turning to Christ. Not long afterwards, a further five came to Christ. And we read that the word of God went on being multiplied, and the Lord went on adding to the church those who were being saved. Rather than stint, rather than stunt, the move of God. This persecution resulted in the acceleration of the move of God. And we see it right here in the streets of Samaria. There was the preaching of Christ. We read in verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip. If you turn uh, to verse 12 in Acts chapter 8, we read that they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. The preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the kingdom of God, the preaching of the name of Jesus Christ. The formula is the same in Samaria as in Jerusalem. 
And as we will visit other towns and cities, we will see the formula remains the same. And dear friends, in spite of the centuries and indeed the millennia that have passed, the formula is still the same. It's preaching Jesus. It's preaching the kingdom of God. It is preaching the name, the name that is above all other names. You remember Peter and John in Acts chapter 3 with the lame man at the gate of the temple. They had nothing to offer him, only the name of Jesus. They said, silver and gold have we none, but such as we have, we give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That name will do what money cannot do. That name will do what dead religion cannot do. That name will do what no guru or philosophy can do. Praise God, dear friends, the formula is the same. Let's not allow it to be diluted. Let's not allow it to be distorted. Let's not allow it to be abandoned. It's Jesus. It's the kingdom of God. It's the name, the name that's above all other names. It's the preaching of Jesus. Very soon after, indeed right in the middle of things happening in Samaria, you'll remember if you're familiar with Acts chapter 8 and you can fill in the gaps for yourself later by reading all of the chapter, Philip is taken away to a desert place from the, from the middle of a great revival to, to a, an isolated, dry, dusty place. And there he was to meet with one man, one man. And he had a message for that one man. The man was a great man, a statesman, a man from Ethiopia returning from Jerusalem where he had bought the scroll of Isaiah. And he was reading what you and I know to be chapter 53. And he kept reading about this man. He, 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 he was wounded for our transgressions. He, he was bruised for our iniquities. And he didn't know who this pronoun referred to. Who is this he? Is it the writer? Is it some other man? And Philip was there to tell him. And we read in verse 35 of Acts 8, that beginning at the same scripture, he preached unto him, Jesus. The message is the same. He preached to him the cross from Isaiah chapter 53. The effect throughout Samaria of Philip's preaching was electric. Let's just look at some of those effects very briefly. Multitudes heard and believed. Whether it's one or whether it's a multitude, there are those who need to hear. And it is our responsibility to tell them. Not only did multitudes hear and believe, but there were signs and there were wonders we read that they not only heeded the things that Philip spoke from verse 6 there, the end of the verse, but they heard and they saw the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. There were signs and there were wonders. There's a great dearth of signs and wonders in our day and in our age. Has God changed? Has the message changed? Perhaps it's we who have changed. And we need to get back, as a British prime minister said some years ago, but never actually managed to achieve it, when he took office in uh, the United Kingdom, he said, it's time to get back to basics, John Major. Time to get back to, it's time for the church to get back to basics. 
Thank God for all that we have by way of buildings, by way of equipment, yes, and indeed by way of personnel. Thank God for all these additions and all these multiplications and all that adds to, to our worship. But dear friends, when all is stripped away, let's get back to Jesus and preaching Jesus and preaching the kingdom and preaching the name that many might hear and believe that signs and wonders might follow. And we read in verse 8, there was great joy in that city. Could anything be more joyous than, than witnessing and being a part of the sovereign move of God? When was the last time your heart was filled with joy? When was the last time there was an eruption of joy in the fellowship in the church? When was the last time, dear friends, we felt that, that thrill of the Holy Spirit in our hearts? Where it, it set even our, our, our feet dancing, it put a, a smile on our face, it brought laughter to our spirit. Dear friends, there was great joy in the city. Oh, what we're missing! There was obedience to the word. Another effect of the preaching of the gospel. We read in verse 12, when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. There was immediate obedience to the word of God. Are you walking in obedience today? The old hymn says, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. And also we see as an effect of this, though they received so much, they received the gospel, they received salvation, they received the joy of salvation, they received healings and miracles, we read that still there was more to come. There was more to come. There was an intense hunger for God born in the hearts of the Samaritan believers. And we read that when news reached Jerusalem from verse 14 now of Acts chapter 8, that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. There's more to come. They received so much, so much excitement, so much enthusiasm, so much happening. And yet, dear friends, there was more to come. And with God, there's always more. We, we never reach a place where we are satiated. We never reach a place where we are utterly satisfied. We never reach a place of absolute contentment. We have a discontented contentment if you like, because God has so much more for us. Peter and John came and they pled their hands upon them, we read, and they received the Holy Spirit, verse 17. They received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And they received the baptism in the Holy Spirit, again with signs following because we read in verse 18 that when Simon saw, when he saw there was some demonstration, there was some manifestation, there was some outward evidence when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money saying, give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. There we, we read of the godless profession. Simon 
was a magician. Not the sort of magician you see on TV that pulls rabbits out of hats, but a, a, a practiser of the black arts into clairvoyance and futurism and binding people with spells and witchcraft. And yet when the gospel came along, he saw a power that far exceeded the power that was at his disposal. And he wanted to jump on this bandwagon. And he did for a while until he was exposed as one who was trying to Christ who was trying to, to, to Christianize his sorcery. That's all he wanted, to Christianize his sorcery, to make it respectable. And the people of God saw through it. Peter saw through it. Your money, he says, perish with you because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter. Friends, there's, there's more. There is genuinely more. There's the genuine article to seek. There's that baptism. There are fresh infillings. There are fresh anointings. There's the whole realm of the Holy Spirit to be explored. Ezekiel had, had a, a vision of it in the waters that came first to his ankles and then to his knees and then came to his waist and then covered his whole being so that he was able to swim in the water. Friends, there's more, more than what you have now. So much more. And it's all available to us still. Strange things happen when God is moving, as we see in the case of this man, Simon, who wanted the Holy Spirit so that he could work his magic in another way. Strange things happen when God is moving. And not everything that happens is of God in revival. An analysis of the revivals, not only of the New Testament, but of church history, even of recent revivals, show that what starts off as a, a genuine move of God can very often be touched by the flesh. And the power is lost. Have we lost the power, dear friends? Paul says to the Galatians, he says, you used to run well in the spirit. What are you doing now? You're running in the flesh. What are you running in the flesh for? That's the wrong realm. That's the wrong race. You're in the wrong place altogether. You've got to get back, friends, to the realm of the Holy Spirit. Revival stirs up the people of God, but it stirs the devil and his people as well. And the devil will do all he can to hijack a move of God. And there will be those like Simon, Simon the Magician, Simon Magus, who for their own reasons will jump on the revival bandwagon. He was a sorcerer with a big customer and fan base before the revival came to town when the light of the gospel and the power of the spirit exposed the works of darkness Simon in order to win back his customers tried as we said to to respect to bring respectability pride tried to bring a mixture of Christianity into his sorcery but the Holy Spirit is not comfortable with unholy spirits. The Holy Spirit is not comfortable with unholy spirits. And Simon's hypocrisy was exposed and confronted. Peter offered to him the, the possibility of, of repentance, but we, we find from church history that Simon did not repent. Irenaeus, the, the historian, identifies him as the father of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is reviving itself today in our woke generation. 
in our generation that, that proclaims all religions are the same and all roads lead to God and that brands the exclusiveness of the gospel as being partisan and as being biased and as being phobic in almost as many directions as you care to point. Gnosticism teaches that salvation is achieved by self-knowledge. You come to realize that you are a God and that there is a God within you and it's letting that God out. They say that sin really is ignorance. It's ignorance of your true self. And salvation as they offer it is discovering that you in fact are a God and thus are not bound, listen, you are not bound by moral laws. How many moral laws are being abandoned day and daily in our land? You are not bound by divine laws. You are not bound by biblical laws. This first century heresy is prevalent still in the 21st where all moral and spiritual restraints have been cast off. And to counteract it, dear friends, we need a move of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will only come when we dissociate ourselves from all unholy spirits that we may have allowed to attach themselves to us. When we detach ourselves from this world and this flesh and begin to cry out to God. You'll remember, I'm sure, accounts of the 1859 revival from sermons or from books that you may have read. And that great revival which touched Ulster and which touched also the United States of America was born, birthed in prayer. And as a result, millions came to Christ. You'll remember the Pentecostal revival at the beginning of the 20th century too was birthed in, in prayer. And it caused this reawakening of the miraculous. Indeed, dear friends, there are two, two factors that are common in every revival. And that is fervent prayer and fearless preaching. Fervent prayer and fearless preaching. And we may have more to say about this in weeks to come. Let me finish off this morning by looking at the genuine, the genuine. We've looked at the, the great persecution that the church endured, and yet the great gospel preaching that occurred even against that background. We've just looked at the godless and how it seeks to stymie the move of God. But look, dear friends, at the genuine, genuine power. Only the genuine power of God can overcome the godless, self-absorbed spirit of secularism that prevails in our societies today. Simon knew the difference between the psychological tricks that he played and the power of the Holy Spirit. They didn't stand comparison. In revival, there's often unexplained phenomenon. Strange things may happen. You read of revival, you read of people holding on to the very pillars of the church because they felt that the ground was opening up beneath them to drag them into hell. You read of people laughing uncontrollably together. You read of people weeping. All sorts of strange phenomena happen in revival. And often, often it's the 
flesh, yes. Yes. Often it's people seeking thrills. Yes. But you know, when God is moving, all sorts of things can happen. When the Holy Spirit is released, all sorts of things can happen. Maybe we're afraid of the Holy Spirit and how he will move. Here we see under the ministry of Philip the true touch of God. And the touch of God means something. Friends, you can roll around on the floor, but if you don't get up different, it hasn't mattered one little bit. You can laugh in the spirit, as they say, till, till your sides ache, but if it doesn't change you as a That's what's needed, the change. Let's take everything that God gives, but let it change us. Let it change us, friends. Let it alter us from the outside in. Let it lead somewhere. It must lead somewhere. Our worship must lead somewhere. So often as churches, we, we worship in a vacuum. And Dare I say, sometimes we love worship more than we love the one we worship. And there's a fairly recent song that, that, that nails that and says, it's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry for the thing I've made it. It's all about you. That's where we need to get back, friends. To it being all about Jesus. And let our worship be filled with Jesus. I was very uplifted this morning. Let our worship be filled with the Lord. Let our worship draw attention not to ourselves but, but to him and let it lead somewhere. In Acts chapter 13 we read of a great church, the church at Antioch. And we read they were ministering to the Lord. That is to say they were worshiping the Lord. And we read the Holy Spirit broke in. The Holy Spirit said, separate me Barnabas and Saul the work wrong, the prophetic began to happen. That's what needs to happen, dear friends. That's what we need to get back to. That's what we were birthed in as an Elam movement. That is our heritage. I came into to Elam as a boy, a boy of, of 15, and, and I was hit between the eyes by the moving of God's Holy Spirit. And yet it wasn't what it was 50 years before that. And now here we are, another 50-odd, more than odd, here we are, another 50-odd years on, and we're even further away from it. It needs to be all about Jesus. It needs to be the genuine power of God. Not, not the pretense that God is doing something, but that God is in his house and that God is shaking things up and that God is meeting people at the point of their need, changing lives. In revival, there is a renewed longing for the salvation of the lost. Is that on our hearts? Is that burdening our souls today? The salvation of the lost. I remember, as that young man that came into Elam, I remember those prayer meetings. The first Elam church I ever stepped into became my home church. It was Apsley Street Church in Belfast, now known as South Belfast Elam. I, I remember going for the first time to the prayer meeting. And, and people got down on their knees. They didn't sit. And again, the posture is not important. It's the condition of the heart. But the people there, their, their tradition perhaps was, was to kneel at their chair. And I saw men, grown men, adult men, some of them who could barely, in conversation, string a sentence <coughs> together. Some who had never been to school or had left school early. And yet when they pray, 
They touched heaven. And heaven truly came down our souls to greet. And glory crowned the mercy seat. I've visioned yet, it has lived with me all my life since. I've visioned yet of one man, a man named Sturdy Cull, who, who, who worked in the famous shipyard. And I can see him now because I opened my eyes to, to watch him pray. And the chair, the chair was lifted like this and slapped down on the ground again and up it went and down it went. Such was the fervor with which he prayed. As I say, it's the condition of the heart that matters, not the posture or the action. But friends, that's, that's what we're missing. That's what we need to long again for the salvation of the lost. There was nothing else. The prayer meetings weren't about you know, Aunt Beth and Uncle Tom. The prayer meetings were about reaching the lost, but going out and bringing people in and going and finding people where they are and ministering to them. The prayer meetings were about saving the lost. There was a raising up and a reaching out to people here in Samaria. Philip was quite willing to leave that scene of Samaria to go after one soul. He left the elation of the crowd for the isolation of the desert for the sake of one soul. And if revival is to come, if we are to know a move of God in our hearts, If it's to come to pass, then we need, like Philip, to be obedient, we need to be available, we need to be courageous, and we need to make it all about Jesus. God bless you.